Hello, everyone, and welcome to And There You Go, a podcast about life. Whether you're hanging from a cliff by one hand or laughing your ass off, we'll cover it all. And now your co-hosts, Addie and Chad. Alrighty then, let's just jump right into it this let's time. Let's do it. So last time I discussed my first experience going to an AA meeting. And in that, uh, I talked about possibly breaking down the 12 steps like I've done with numerous patients in the recovery centers that I've worked at. So the intent with this conversation is really to help you, Addie, and our listeners understand kind of what goes on in the 12 steps and maybe dispel some of the uh, stigma around it, but uh, really talk about what works in the 12 steps and a little bit about why it works. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, that will help some people. And especially if people are out there contemplating whether or not they want to participate in a 12-step program or have loved ones who they might want to help steer towards a 12-step program, if that's appropriate or if that's something that will help them. So uh, I, I just kind of want to break these down, like I said, in a simplistic kind of a way that helps a lot of people who are have an aversion to this understand. And I think that's one of the key things is that a lot of times people hear about this, that there's um, this perception about it as being cultish or religious, right. uh, you know, just ancient because it was written nearly, you know, I mean, this, this program was started nearly a hundred years ago. I almost said 200 years ago, but it's not quite that long, but uh, nearly a hundred years ago, you know, and so the language in the 12 steps is not current language either. And it's like, who talks like that anymore? Who writes like that anymore? And I especially heard that from one of the audiences that I worked with a, a lot. And uh, that was uh, the adolescents and young adults. And I'd hear that, you know, that notion of, you know, culty and old language and all of that. So I had to try to dispel them because my, my purpose in the talks that I did with them was to introduce them to AA or the 12-step programs, whether it's AA or NA in this particular case in, in this recovery center. And there was a lot of aversion to it, obviously. So how did I connect with them? How did I make it relevant to them? And so I just kind of threw away the language and threw away kind of the the normal way that this is presented to folks. And As a teacher, I love that you did that. Yeah, well, it was, it was a way I could understand it. And this is how I've come to understand the 12 steps. Yeah. And this is what made sense to me. So I want to kind of walk you through that as, as I would present it to, in, you know, an audience of younger people, uh, skeptical people, cynics, uh, uh, people like that. So in my work with the 12 steps, I really see this uh, is broken down into about four major sections. So taking all the 12 steps and breaking them down roughly into like three or four steps each. Well, it'd be three if we're doing an average, but who's counting, right? Right. <laughs> anyway, so the first section that I have is called the tow truck section. And this uh, includes steps one through three. And so the way that I started out talking about this is I, I read the first step. And normally I'd have a placard of the 12 steps up that I could point to, you know, point the, uh, uh, the kids to so that they could read along with it. Mm -hmm. I've given you a, a copy of the 12 steps there. Yeah. 
And so the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I told the kids, and I'll ask you this question, there are two words in there that didn't sit well at all with me when I first read it. Can you identify what those words might be? I think I can. I would say powerless Mm -hmm. and unmanageable. Yep, absolutely spot on. And uh, the reason that they really rubbed me the wrong way was this this first one, powerless. I'm powerless over alcohol. Nonsense. I was not powerless over alcohol. I was uh, a high-functioning alcoholic, and I could quit anytime I wanted to. I knew that. I told myself that all the time. In fact, I did that all the time. You know, I could stop drinking for you know, special occasions like uh, birthdays or family get-togethers. I could, I could control my drinking or I could stop in advance of that. I could quit, you know, four times like I'd promised myself on my birthday that I'd, I'd quit and I'm going to be, you know, sober for a week just to prove that I can control it. And I could do that. And at, but, you know, at the end of the week, I'd, I'd take up drinking again uh, because I had met my commitment. And I could do this, you know, stop at will over and over and over again. And so it was like, how can this have power over me? How can I be powerless to this substance? Or how come anybody would think that this is unmanageable in any way? Right, right. And I'll come to unmanageable in a second here. But powerless in what I just said, that I could do this over and over and over again, as I really started to examine that, I realized that it was over and over and over again, and there was never any real sobriety there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had been sober for a year at one point, but I took up drinking. And so as I really reflected on that, and when I got really honest with myself, that's when I had to say, admit to myself that I am powerless, that I can't quit this thing, that no matter what I do, I always go back to drinking. And I think that's one of the key elements throughout the 12 steps is this brutal honesty that you have to have with yourself in accepting and understanding, seeing and accepting what the reality is of your situation. Because to be brutally honest with yourself about anything. Well, absolutely. Is rough. Right, right. And it's, it's very difficult because, you know, I'll get into this in in some of the later steps where I really have to take a deep dive into myself and be brutally honest with myself. And I'll talk about the implications of not doing that uh, as well. So again, now to your second word, unmanageable. My life is manageable. I I am a high-functioning alcoholic. I go to a good job every day. I go to my kids' events. I go to church on Sundays sometimes. I partake in family get-togethers, extended family get-togethers, social events with friends, and I'm not stumbling around, I'm not slurring my words, I'm not uh, passing out, anything like that. So how is my life unmanageable until I think about the DUI that I had when I drove under the influence with kids in the car? Then I think about in the mornings when I wake up hungover, And I have to drink just to feel normal so that I can go to work. How eventually it got so bad that I'd have to go out at lunchtime to my car and have a drink because I was starting to have the shakes. That I would miss work because I was feeling so crappy I couldn't go in. If I looked at myself honestly, my life had become unmanageable too. 
So that's the first step. I, I have no control over this, and my life is out of control itself. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So in this sentence, you'll notice the word power is capitalized. What do you think when you see it capitalized like that? Well, I think that that's the word that they want you to hone in on. Right, right. And it has, when I asked that question of the young people that I worked with, they'd say, well, it, that means like God or something like that. So it has, being capitalized, it has that spiritual or religious connotation to it. Right. So what does power look like? Right. It can look like God, but not everybody is, is going to go with that. Right, right, exactly. And that's touched on in step three where it says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And the key word here, or the, the key phrase in here is, as we understood him. So I want to back up to step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The word sanity, I, what does that mean? I'm, I'm insane? No, sanity means that you're not thinking properly. Mm-hmm. You know, So uh, while you're under the influence uh, or while you're using, that becomes your priority when it really shouldn't. You should have other priorities. I should have had my kids as priority instead of, you know, drinking and driving. I I should have had my job as a priority. I should have had my family and my, just everything else. And that's the insanity part of it. So all of it became unmanageable. Exactly. It, It totally was unmanageable, but I just didn't see it like that until I got honest with myself. Mm-hmm. So this notion of a power greater than ourselves, I like to use the analogy of somebody driving down the road. Let's say it's you. You're driving down the road, uh, country road, and it's a blizzard. And you've got to get home. Uh, you know, your parents are waiting for you. you know, if you're one of the kids that I was talking to. Uh, your parents are waiting for you. You've got a curfew or something. You have to get home. All of a sudden, you spin out. You hit an icy patch, and you spin out, and you land in the ditch. So if you're like me, you know, what I'd do is uh, I'd rock the car a little bit, try to get it out. I'd probably get out and move some snow away from the tires, try to get it out. Maybe put some branches or, you know, if you got kitty litter, it's good to put under tires if you're getting mm-hmm. stuck like that. Um, try everything you can to get out, and you can't. You're stuck. You can't do it yourself. What do you do? Call for help. Bingo. And that's why I call this the tow truck section. Ah. You realize that you're stuck. First step, you're powerless. This is unmanageable situation. You're stuck and you can't do anything about it yourself. And, and you come to that realization and you realize, like step two, you realize that you need help. So you get on your phone, call a tow truck, you call your friends, you call your parents to come and help. I can't do it myself. I need some help. And when that help comes, that's the third step. That's when you accept that help. So in, in the second step, a power greater than ourselves, greater than ourselves, and I want to get to this point, does it have to be God? Does it have to be something spiritual or uh, religious in any way, shape, or form? And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be. It has to be something greater than ourselves. Now, I've heard of people, that is this, this notion of somebody made a doorknob their higher power. I'm not sure that that really works but you know, to each his own. I, I would I heard suggest. A tree. I would Somebody suggest. Made a tree. Well, and and so let's <laughs> let's expand that notion a bit then. Yeah. So, could you make something like nature your higher power? 
Yeah. That's getting closer. That's getting closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I would tell kids is that for me, you know, I'm kind of a pragmatic thinker. I'm, I'm really interested in science. I, uh, you know, have a spiritual bent to myself too, but I see the whole universe and it, all of its complexities and beauty and wonder to me, that's, that's my higher power. And if I want to put a label on it and I do call it God, um, that there are so many things going on in this universe I don't even understand, you know, and, and, and God's got that. And so that, that's one, one of an infinite number of ways of conceiving of a higher power, mm-hmm. right? So you get to pick, and that's what the third step is all about. And so we've got, you know, this notion that you're stuck in a ditch. You realize that you can't get out yourself, so you have to call for help. So when that help arrives, let's say you call a tow truck, are you going to get out of the car and tell this guy, he might be that same big burly guy that was at the front door of my meeting <laughs> who drives this tow truck and comes to get you out. Are you going to get out and tell him, hey, listen, buddy, I know exactly what to do, so you listen to me. I want you to back up your truck just so, and don't get it any closer or farther away than this. And then I want you to lift this lever and unhook the, the cable from the winch, and I want you to string it down, and here's exactly where I want you to place it. And then I want you to get back. I want you to check the tires, make sure there's nothing under there, you know, that's going to block it when you start to pull it out. And then I want you to go up and, and do the levers, and then I want you to just ever so slowly at this speed drive out of this and Sounds pull like me out. Sounds like you're trying to control I'm things. I'm trying to control the whole damn thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's what the third step is made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now, here's what I, I tell kids. You can replace this language of God and him. Does it have to be a him? doesn't no. have to be a him, right? It could be whatever. The point being is that you realize it's not you. It's something that's bigger than you. Um, I got stuck on this step when I was going through this. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over. I couldn't, I, it's like, how am I going to turn over the entire concept of me to something else. I couldn't figure out how to do that. And then my sponsor had this great retort to that. He asked, actually asked me a riddle. He said, Chad, there's three frogs on a lily pad. One of them decides to jump off. How many frogs are left on the lily pad? And if you know the answer, you can say it. But Two? Well... Well, one jumped off. There's three. There were three. One jumped off. No. There's three on the lily pad because the one only decided to jump off. Oh. He didn't actually have Uh to jump. And so that's what this step is. And when my sponsor told me that, it became clear. I don't have to do it right now. The doing it will come in the rest of the steps. But I have to decide to commit to doing the rest of the steps, to commit to giving myself over to what's being asked of me, giving myself over to that tow truck driver and letting him guide me and help me get unstuck. Make sense? Tow truck section. Totally makes sense. Okay. I love this. Okay. So the next section uh, is where we really get down to some heavy-duty work. And this section I call taking out the trash. And this one is scary, and this section can take time to do. This is the fourth and fifth step and includes the sixth step and seventh step as well. But I'm mostly going to focus on the fourth and fifth because that's where a lot of the heavy work comes in. Fourth step says, made a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves. What the hell does that mean? That means we take a good hard look at the way we are, 
And that is not an easy thing to do. It is not an easy thing. And, you know, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm really only going to paraphrase some of it. In the big book, uh, when I refer to the big book, that's the Alcoholics Anonymous book, the main book that they use. So in that book, there is uh, a lot written about this, about how you actually create a grid, sort of, and you list out all of the people that have been a part of your life, might have affected you in some way. And you look at what they did to you, but you also look at your responsibility in that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, which is hard to do because some people piss you off and, you know, it's like, what's my responsibility in that? Well, sometimes there is a responsibility in there, even if it's to say, I'm not going to have a relationship with you anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you never do that, I, I did that. That's that's why I was in a marriage for 30 years. I didn't have the ability to to take ownership of my part of that. And my part of that was to stand up for myself and say, I'm not taking this anymore. So a lot of the resentment or excuse me, a lot of the things that are talked about in the big book that we suffer from are anger and resentments. There's a lot of other things as well. And so what we, what we do is we go through and identify all of these things. And then we go through this step of admitting to God or your higher power, whatever that might be, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, again, here's where this language is really kind of old. So you have to really kind of look past that and look at the actions. So when you admit it to God, it's basically like this, this is a cathartic step. So you're, you're basically saying, okay, universe, God, higher power, whatever, here's what I did. This is, this is, the start of taking accountability for what you've done, right? So you admit it to ourselves, that's that self-honesty, and then you admit it to another human being. Why do you do another human being? Usually that's your sponsor. It, again, is that cathartic experience where you're actually making this statement that I am taking ownership of this, and there's some accountability when you tell it to somebody else too. So like when you release it to God, it's kind of like, you know, you, you tie a note to a balloon and let it go off in the universe, or you write a note and you burn it. It's just kind of a, a release to, to let it go from there. So we go through this process and really kind of clean ourselves out. And this is really, really hard. And for me, it was a lot of resentment that was really bottled up inside and was expressed as anger or depression, different things like that. Now, this section here is where people might want to take more time. And this is not this is a part of why I say that the 12 steps are really uh, one tool in a larger toolbox. Uh, you know, AA will separate you, can, can help separate you from your, your substance. And if you keep doing the things in these steps, there's a step or I guess that's the word, mm-hmm. where, where you cycle back and, and work through things. But there are some things that the program simply can't address. And I think because of the era that this was written in, some things like trauma uh, aren't, aren't reflected in some of this work here. Sometimes, I wondered about that. Yeah, and sometimes when you need professional outside help, 
to deal with some of those things. And this is the section where you should really be dealing with those things, is working on what's going on inside of you to try to get that straightened out. Now, some people, they can do it with as it's prescribed in the 12-step the program. Other people, like me, I needed to go outside of the 12-step program to get help with some of the things that I experienced. So the trauma of betrayals. Mm-hmm. Just different things like that. So did, did you have a question around that? Well, yeah, I guess it was about trauma because most of the people that I know that have addiction issues, they were generated often by trauma. Right. Trauma that they could not deal with. And so they drank or used drugs to not feel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, that's, that's a huge, huge factor in a lot of addictions. So, so would you th- say that at least some of the time trauma is a gateway, is the gateway drug? I would say so. Yeah, you could phrase it like that. I think in, in many, many, many cases, drugs and alcohol are used to escape the pain of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and escape feeling. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's other things that drive people to addiction. So, you know, like for the young people I worked with, one of the, the things was uh, it, it was a recreational thing. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's over time, it just took them. Or there was peer pressure. You know, we wanted to be part of the cool crowd. You know, there's not necessarily trauma there, but, you know, there is there are pressures, external pressures for you to do that. So, And then those people would have a genetic disposition maybe. There's, there is some of that so too. So if they're using and they have that genetic disposition, it could there's at least a, Yes, there's at least a correlation. So I know that in my extended family, my, my blood family, my blood extended family, so uncles, aunts, cousins, there is a history of addiction mm-hmm. and mental health issues. So I, I want to say that this section, taking out the trash, there might be more work that you need to think about doing outside of what is prescribed within the 12 steps itself. And I encourage people to, to seek out professional help when it comes to that. They're likely to be more successful yeah. if they do that. And, and you know, the, the beauty about the 12 steps is that you might identify some of those things that you need to work on. I know I did. I knew that my anger and resentments stemmed from the betrayals that I experienced. Well, that caused me to dig deeper and realize, oh, crap, I need to get a therapist to deal with some of this stuff. Because nowhere in the the AA or the 12-step literature does it really address that. Right. And And it's not really intended to. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, a sponsor is not a therapist. Absolutely, And they should never act like they're a therapist. No, they should not. They should not. And, you know, every sponsor that I've encountered or most people in the program that I've uh, spoken with agree with that, absolutely. So so we've got the tow truck section, mm-hmm. and we've got taking out the trash. And so the next section I call fixing the things we broke. And the reason I call it that is that as addicts and alcoholics, we make a mess of things. So we could possibly have stolen money, crashed a car and wrecked somebody else's car, uh, relationships. One of the questions I ask the kids is, how's your relationship with your folks? They go, not so good. Yeah. yeah. And so part of cleaning up what we've done is what this, this section is all about. Now, I want to step back for a second and say the ultimate goal of the 12 steps 
is something that's called a spiritual awakening. So that's what we're working towards. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later on, but a spiritual awakening sounds kind of woo-woo, you know. It's, uh, you know, it's not like a... The, the, the clouds part and the angels sing and, you know, you, you're just like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, enlightened or whatever. What it really is, what it really becomes is a change in your personality so that you're able to accept the things that you need to accept to heal and get better. So it's, it's this awakening that this is the truth of me. This is what I've done. So the truth of me is the taking out the trash section. The, this is what I've done is fixing the things I broke. If you want to get to a place where you feel like you're more whole and that your life isn't a mess, then these are the things that you need to do. So, so fixing the things I broke is, is a very difficult section as well. I mean, all of this is hard, but that's the thing you have to do is you have to be able to commit to the hard work here. And that's with any change effort, any major change effort. This section uh, is comprised of two steps. It said, made a list of the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to all of them. And boy, that's crazy talk as far as I was concerned when I went through it. It's like I was the one that was wronged in all of these betrayals. I was the one that was wronged when people would look down on me and tell me I was you know, no good for the drinking I was doing and, and all of the things that happened there. But then I had to realize that I did have a part in that. And it wasn't just the fact that I had a part in it. What this was was taking responsibility for my actions, for my actions, not the actions of other people. So in any sort of a relationship or any situation, I have certain actions that I am responsible for because I did them, right? So if I crash a car into a storefront, well, I'm pretty much responsible for that, mm-hmm. right? It's not the store's fault. It's not the store owner's fault. So I need to take care of that. And I do that so that I can feel kind of cleansed inside. And I, I don't like that word, but that's kind of the way to think about it is that you're just cleaning that up. Now, my understanding is that there are specific ways that you go about doing this. Yep. Yep, and let me let me talk you through a couple of examples okay. and, and see if, if this kind of helps with that line of thinking. So when I went through the 12-step program the first time, I, I made amends. I made a list, but I was really selective in what I, who I talked to. So it was just like I made a list, and I thought, thought Kind of like I tried to go through the 12 steps the first time where I just did it as a checklist. I kind of said, yeah, I didn't really, that person doesn't really matter. So I just kind of wrote them off and said, no, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to talk to that person. I do need to talk to this person. I'm only going to talk to this person about some of what I did, some of the, some of the stuff. And, and, and everybody else can go screw themselves because, you know, dang it, I was hurt in this too. Right. But you're not supposed to approach anybody if it would do more harm, right? Right, right, okay. exactly, exactly. There are some caveats around on uh, how you do this. And uh, so what I realized, you know, the, f- the first time I went through treatment and the 12 steps, and I was sober for a year, and then I fell apart uh, and relapsed big time, was, you know, a couple of things that happened. First of all, I had the wrong higher power, 
because that whole year that I was sober, I was on probation, and I was using that as my higher power. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's that was something that was not me that had more power than me, right? Sure. And yeah. so once I was off of that, that higher power went away. So I was right back where I started. The other thing is I half-assed the 12 steps. It's, it's you know, cutting corners. Uh, they're called in the vernacular of the 12-step program, they're called half measures. But it's really half-assing stuff. So I half-assed my amends as well. You know, and so I still had that. I had these feelings of angst when I thought about those people I didn't make amends to. Mm-hmm. So the second time I went through uh, the 12-step program, I made a list of everybody I could think of, even people I never even thought I would owe some kind of amends to. And I set about making those amends. So when you go out to make amends, and I think this is uh, where you had the question, is when you go out to make amends, you are there to talk about exactly what you did. If the person you're making amends to says anything negative, derogatory towards you, you don't react to that. You just say, thank you, but, you know, here's what I did. You're not supposed to go out and point fingers at them. Like, here's what you did, and that was part of the reason yeah, that I here's, started. Yeah, here's why I did it. Yeah. So, case in point, um, my ex-wife, when I made amends to her, I didn't excuse her for her betrayals, but I did go and say, here's how my drinking affected your life. And I didn't do that for her. I did that for me. So I could take ownership. It's called cleaning my side of the street. That if I clean up my stuff, nobody can say anything about me again. Two really good examples that I like to relay in this, um, two different experiences in making amends. One was to my former mother-in-law. And I went and uh, had a conversation with her. I, I made amends. I said, you know, I'm alcoholic. Here's what I did. And, and I'll, let me step back. When I was about to make amends, my sponsor was really good. He gave me kind of an outline of how, how these should go. Uh, the first thing is to admit that I'm alcoholic to these people and say, here's, here's what I did to harm you. You know, here's how I affected our relationship. Mm-hmm. The fourth or third section was about, here's what I'm doing now about my alcoholism. So I'm going to AA. I went to treatment. I'm uh, seeing a therapist. I told all of that and got it all out. And the, the last part was to ask for forgiveness. Now, it's not my business to ask for forgiveness necessarily or expect it, rather. I, I would say that, you know, I hope someday you can forgive me, but if not, I completely understand. I get it. What you're doing is you're putting everything ugly out there in front of them and taking ownership of your part of it. Okay. You know, because when you do that, you get stronger inside. And I'll illustrate that with my examples here. So when I went to talk to my mother-in-law, I went through that script, if you will, and, and said, you know, I, I'm alcoholic. I, I did these things. Here's how I affected our relationship. Here's what I'm doing about it. And, oh, by the way, you know, hope you can forgive me, but I understand if you can't. And I got pushback from her. And she started to berate me for what I had done. And I just sat there and I accepted that. And it was, it was hard to take. It was really hard to take because she had a lot of negative things to say to me and about me. The next one that was really difficult for me was my former brother-in-law. So 
because of the nature of his occupation, it was, it was a real struggle to go in. And I called him up and said, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to you uh, about this. Go into his office. Uh, it's a formidable office, kind of a power office. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there, and he just sits there, and he looks at me. And I was terrified because I thought, here, here he is, you know, big brother to the, my ex-wife, you know, very protective and everything. And I thought, I'm going to get nailed with this. And he sits there, and, and he just kind of stares at me, you know, from behind his big desk, you know, the power desk. And he said, you know, this is something about AA. And I said, yeah, it is. So I just went through my spiel, you know, and, and each word that came out, you know, I just all I could think about was how he was going to react and, and how he was just going to just hammer me at the end of this. So I said, you know, Chad, alcoholic, you know, here's what I did. Here's what I'm doing about it. And, oh, by the way, you know, hope you can forgive me, but I understand if you can't. And he just sat there, just staring me down. I thought, oh, Lord, here it comes. He said, well, Chad, thank you for sharing that. Here's a nice little statement before the the bomb explodes here. I want to thank you for doing this, um, but I also have a confession. He said, I have to apologize to you, too. Wow. I saw that you were struggling, and I didn't do anything to help you, and I am sorry. So which of those two experiences do you think I cherish the most? Well, that I, like I the would most? think that it would be with your ex-brother-in-law. Yeah, but the thing is, both of them. Because I walked away from both of those feeling an inner strength that I hadn't felt in years because my shame was gone because I took ownership of what I had done, regardless of how they reacted or how they saw me. I was relieved of that shame and the, the inner monologue telling me I'm no good because I'm doing this. I took ownership of it, and I walked away, and I felt clean after it. So, tow truck section, taking out the trash and fixing the things I broke. And the last section really is all around keeping it rolling. Did you have a question? Oh, I had more of a comment. Please, or, please. Because I did have somebody come to me to make amends. Okay. And that was Mr. A. Yeah. I don't believe that he uses AA or the 12 steps in the way they should be used. Okay. He didn't set a time to do this with me. It just kind of, I guess, organically happened. Yeah. And I was still so raw because not only had he been a big drinker, but he was abusing me. And so he started the spiel and I broke down crying Mm -hmm. and told him how much he'd hurt me. And he said, this isn't how it's supposed to go. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And he just threw up his hands and left. It really sounds like he's trying to weaponize the program and use it against you. So. Well, yeah, he did in other ways, too. I would have to say that he is not, yeah, it, that doesn't sound like, no. Because when you go through this, if you do this right, 
it really humbles you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound very humble to me. No. And he would say to me on a regular basis, you do not come first. You will never come first. My sobriety has to always come first. Again, he's weaponized it. Yeah, he's, he's trying to use that to manipulate you or, or take power from you because of that. The reality is, yeah, you have to put your, your sobriety first. But that doesn't mean you forego all other obligations and disrespect people because of that. Mm-hmm. No, what that means is that you really have to focus on staying sober and staying you know, in touch with what you're trying to accomplish, but not to the exclusion of other people, especially people you supposedly love. This is supposed to do the exact opposite of that. Right. So I went to my therapist and said, this is what he said to me. Is this true? Because she is a licensed addiction therapist amongst other things. Yeah. She said, that's not pretty much what you said. That's not how it's supposed to be. No, that that sounds like somebody who's still got a lot of issues. And his sponsor is a sponsor to many, many people. And his sponsor, I guess, knew who my therapist was. I don't really know how that all came about. But he approached her and said, I know you're a therapist and I'm just wondering about this. Do you, you know, how do you tell people that have an addiction issue that they need to put their sobriety first above anything else, including a marital relationship. And she said, you don't, because that's not how it works. Yeah. And I think, I think there were, there's some misunderstanding about that notion of priorities. I think that a focus on sobriety has to be there. That has to be, because otherwise, if you don't address that, then the relationship is going to stay where it is or get worse, or you're going to stay where you're at and get worse. So there's this notion of the spiritual awakening that ties into this that I I want to talk about in this next section. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, the four sections, tow truck section, taking out the trash, fixing the things that broke, And then now this next section, the last section, is just keeping it rolling. So you've done all of this work, this wonderful, really hard work. You don't want to go backwards. You want to keep it rolling. You want to maintain the progress, keep building on what you've already accomplished, what you've learned about yourself, what you've changed about yourself. Because if if you don't stay focused on it to some level, you are going to relapse. You will. People, that's what happens with people is if you don't stay focused on it. And I completely understand that, Mm -hmm. but it was just the way it was presented to me. Yeah. As though I just was not of any importance anymore. Yeah. Because this was everything. So let me put it this way say you have two kids, both are priorities. Which one do you put first? You don't. You don't, right? Now let's say one gets a broken arm. Which one do you put first? You take care of the one with the broken arm. Yeah, but that you just don't. But you, you still don't, take care of the other child. That's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. There might be some issues over here, but it it is important to focus on maintaining your sobriety, but not to the expense of. Right? Does Thank that make you. sense? Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yep. Because you're just going to mess everything up, or everything's going to stay messed up. 
So um, kind of to, to t- get back to this notion of the ultimate goal here of the 12 steps is really to have this spiritual awakening. This is the prize. This is the prize here. Uh, spiritual awakening isn't, uh, like I said, it isn't the, the clouds parting, the angels singing, you know, ah, kind of thing. It's not this woo-woo moment. It might be for some people. A spiritual awakening doesn't necessarily happen like a thundercracker, God's booming voice saying, you know, healed, you're healed. And it, it a lot of times, and for me, it came in a slow progression. So it was really kind of looking back at, okay, when I first went to a meeting, it sucked. As I kept going to meetings, it sucked less and less until I started enjoying going to them. I got to the 12 steps. They sucked. It was a mountain that was just crazy, and I was never able to, going to be able to climb it. But I started doing the work, and it got better. And as I started going to meetings more, I started to feel better. As I started working the steps, I started to think differently. I started to feel myself healing. And I didn't realize it was happening at the time, but my sponsor at the time said, Chad, think about how far you've come. And when I looked at it like that, I realized that my mindset had changed so that now I was very accepting of the way I was and the things that I did and the things that I needed to do to keep moving forward because I loved the person I had become and I didn't want to go back. And that change in mindset, that's that spiritual awakening. And to get that and to actually recognize it in you, it's insane. And it's, it's really kind of hard to talk about or, or you know, describe, rather. Um, but it, you, you get to this point where it's like, I never want to go back. I want to do everything I can to stay here. So, you know, you and I talk about this. You've never had it. You say you've never had an issue with me thinking about drinking. It's because I've had... That, that spiritual awakening, I know now what I want for me. I like who I am now. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of that was in part due to the 12 steps and some of the work. Now, some of the work I had to do outside, like, you know, in the taking out the trash section, I had to seek out a therapist. Uh, I had to do some hard work outside of the program. Uh, it was, some of it was during the program. Some of it was after the program. But one of the, the huge things that the program gave me was that fixing the things I broke section. I felt so incredibly strong after I did that in this inner strength that I hadn't had in years because I felt all this shame because I knew exactly what I was doing the whole time. So this whole program really kind of shifted my mindset so that sobriety is something I want and not something I'm fighting against. That and- makes sense. So hopefully that helps. Uh, Do you have any other questions that I can ask or answer at this time? I know that you had some throughout, but if not, you know, we can certainly come back uh, at another time too. No, I, not really a question, maybe a statement in that you have made me feel so much better about the 12 step program. Good. Because there's rhetoric that some people use and it would make me cringe listening to it because I knew that it wasn't real. Yeah. Like that person really wasn't there. They were just using the rhetoric. And you don't do that. You explain things in a way that makes sense 
and I, I'm just so appreciative because I have a different attitude about it just in general, Good. especially your last comment that you made about what was it that that's what you wanted. You were making a conscious choice. Yep. I want sobriety. I'm not fighting sobriety now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you got something out of it, you know, and hopefully our listeners have gotten something out of it. So, you know, just keep in mind, pretty easy. You need to call a tow truck, you know. You need to work on the stuff inside. You need to fix the things you broke, and then you just keep it rolling. And there you go. So we're going to cut back in here just for a moment because after we closed the segment, Addie and I were talking, and there was some additional things that Addie wanted to say, questions that she wanted to ask. And it had to do with her experience in dealing with somebody who was going through the AA program, but probably didn't do it in quite the right way. So coming out of this, you said that you were emotional. Can you maybe tell me why you were emotional coming out of this episode? I, I felt stiff through this episode. Yeah. And I think you noticed it. And I I wasn't really sure why exactly, but I think I was triggered. Okay. Because this man, like I've said, he was extremely abusive Mm -hmm. to me, verbally, emotionally, sometimes physically. And to be told that I was less than, that this was more important than I was, and... And he he used that rhetoric, the, oh, I just wish that you could find peace in yourself like I have. I wish that you had serenity the way that I do. And then he'd write emails to me and say things like that. And at the end of every email would be, and please let me know how I can be of service to you. And it all sounds so disingenuous as you're you're describing this. Exactly. It was completely disingenuous. And he's prominent in the AA community. And he does a lot of things. And it's so upsetting to me that he is misusing the big book. He does it like some people use the Bible. Mm -hmm. And they'll take out a verse and say, look, see, this is this is what it says. Yeah. He interprets things in a way that will benefit him. So and here's, here's the makes, thing with that, if, if I can just interject sure. something here. I think the program, the 12 steps, the big book, anything related to it is not intended for you to wield towards somebody else. That is for you and you alone to deal with. And so as you describe it, this person is using, and I've seen this with other people, where they will, like I said before, weaponize the information. And as you just said, twist it so that it works to their benefit. Right. As a way to abuse me more. Yes. Really. And that is not, and I need to emphasize that, that is not the intent of any type of 12-step program. The 12-step program is a self inward, me-driven effort. I'm here to fix me, not you. I'm just so concerned for people that he is working with because he's not ready to work with anybody 
Well, and it certainly doesn't sound like there's been that legitimate spiritual awakening. I, I don't know the man. I don't know how he is out in the, uh, the public. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible that he could recite everything, and people will listen to him, and he might be able to walk them through. What he doesn't have is the type of relationship that he had with you, with these people. He didn't have a very personal abusive relationship with those people like he had with you. So there might be a different dynamic with them, but I am still concerned about this possibility of him acquiring a sense of power by exactly. being able to, you know, it, it's it's akin to some of the, the mega preachers that you see out there, the evangelists that, that are on TV. Uh, I'm not knocking religion in any way, but I do have an aversion to people who take advantage of other people and use things like religion or other knowledge or you know anything like that to manipulate and control or receive power to feed their ego. And that so, is entirely possible as to what's happening. Now, is he giving them the information as it is presented in the 12 Steps? I don't know. I've never heard him talk, but it sounds like he's pretty intelligent based on his occupation. So I, I think he could present the information and that people would be able to follow it. But it feels like there's this facade, this phoniness there, mm -hmm. that if it's used inappropriately, it could have a life-changing effect on somebody. It could be very now, damaging. It, that, that it could be damaging. It could also be positive, too, if you know the person doesn't fall too deep into his... Web, web control, uh, you know, into the whatever, whatever game that he might be playing. I don't know. Again, I don't know the man. Uh, I'm, I'm only speculating, kind of in a general standpoint. But, um, but you're right. I mean, it sounds like there was a gross misunderstanding of really what the program is all about by this person. Mm -hmm. So, at any rate, we wanted to just add that little bit into it, and uh, hopefully, that has some value to people out there who might be on the other side of the addiction who are going to Al-Anon or just struggling in general with somebody who uh, is is going through the, whether it's recovery program or the 12-step program, trying to use that to manipulate other people. You know, I that, would that, just say to people, be so careful who you choose. And just because somebody's charismatic does not mean that they're going to do the best job for you. True. That's very true. It's really, it, it's contrary to that section about fixing the things that I broke. If you're trying to use this, wield this as a weapon or a tool to try to manipulate or change or affect somebody else in any other way, you got it all wrong. I'm sorry, but you got it flat out wrong. And you need to go back to the beginning and humble yourself. Some people, that'll never happen to. It won't. I'm sorry to say. But there you go. That's a wrap.